0: Mayo Clinic presents the Always On EM podcast hosted by Alex Finch and Vank Bellamconda. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Always on EM. My name is Venk Bellamkanda. I am one of the two hosts of the show. I'm excited to be joined again by my colleague, Dr. Alex Finch. To those of you who are new to the show, thank you so much for checking us out. We hope you have a good time, learn a lot, and you come back for more. Many of you are returning listeners, and we couldn't be more grateful. That means that what we're doing resonates with you, and that is why we do this. We have a lot of fun making it, but the fact that it is making an impact on a lot of people's lives is even better. Don't forget, you can connect with the show by liking, commenting, or following us on all of your platforms, reaching out to us on Twitter at AlwaysOnEM, or via our email address, AlwaysOnEM at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you in all the different ways you want to reach out to us. I am absolutely thrilled to introduce this month's guest on our show. Dr. Pratish Tash is somebody I initially met when I was a trainee and we were working on the same case together. I have since gotten to know him better over the years in various capacities. I can say that outside of the hospital, he is a wonderful person. He has two beautiful kids and a wonderfully supportive and loving spouse. He's kind and thoughtful. Inside the hospital, he is highly decorated as a clinician and an educator. He's won several Teacher of the Year awards. He's recognized as an exceptional presenter if you ever want to have somebody come give your grand rounds, for example, and when news stations need a world expert to comment on emerging infections like we have had many recently, such as Zika, MERS, Ebola, influenza, and of course COVID, they reach out to Dr. Tosh. It is for this reason I am absolutely thrilled to introduce Dr. Tosh, who's going to be talking to us about monkeypox. Dr. Tosh, welcome to the show. Is there anything you want to share before we get started?
1: Sure thing, thank I'd love to do this. And Like and subscribe, you know, I, my six-year-old always talks about like and subscribe, now I understand what that means. So I've spent my whole career on emerging infections and hospital preparedness for emerging infections. I used to be part of the Epidemic Intelligence Service at the CDC before joining faculty here at Mayo Clinic. Any of your listeners are wondering, what is the Epidemic Intelligence Service? Yeah, it's as cool as it sounds. Yeah, I spent two years uh, after my Infectious Diseases Fellowship at the CDC training in outbreak investigation in in my specific area, really awesome, in addition to sort of pandemic preparedness, just like emerging infections, how do you look into it? And then after coming back on staff as as a Mayo scholar I worked with, Mike Osterholm's group, you Google Mike Osterholm, you'll find a million you know, interviews, but uh, working with him as a fellow in the infectious, uh, Center for Infectious Diseases Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota, these things really helped cement my training. And as soon as I finished there, you know, here comes Ebola, and then here comes Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, and then this SARS-CoV-2, which turned out to be a very big thing and you know, new things. And of course, now we're, we're looking at monkeypox which of course I had heard about, but most people had not heard about. It's going to be a bigger thing than I think most people initially thought.
2: Before we even get to monkeypox, you have to tell me more about this time at the CDC. How does one track down an emerging infection? What does the day-to-day of someone in that role look like?
1: Yeah, so the Epidemic Intelligence Service, and most people will call it EIS, that's been around since the 1950s. It's uh, originally set up during the Korean conflict to try to identify bioterrorism or biologic weapons being used as you know, in warfare. Um, of course, since that time, EIS has been involved with lots of things, including smallpox eradication, but also looking at you know, motor vehicle deaths, you know, handgun violence, and lots of things that impact health in the United States and globally. Um, so whenever you're looking at a new Infection and new outbreak, they often will send EIS, especially if it's a local outbreak. But if it's across the world, other governments often ask the CDC for assistance on sort of tracking this down, figuring out how did this start, how do we stop it, and often the first people on the ground on the ground is EIS. If anyone is interested, and this should hopefully get people interested, going to the CDC website and Searching for EIS, and you know, there's a lot of conspiracy theories about what EIS does. It's just a bunch of nerds, but it was a lot of fun. It was sort of the best, the best time a nerd could have.
0: Is it at all like Robin Cook's Outbreak, the book, or anything like the movie Outbreak
1: that with uh, Dustin Hoffman? Yeah, yes, I have seen the movie. I yeah. think the Dustin Hoffman character was playing an EIS officer. I don't know. But they were shooting Contagion, if you remember the movie Contagion, at the time I was there. And actually, Kate Winslet hung out with my colleague. And essentially, Kate was playing my colleague in the movie. Later on, we find out that Kate's character died, which we felt really bad for Barb. But... uh, could I I mean, they give something away for a movie that's been out for 10 years? Hopefully that's not
0: too... No, it's okay. No forbidden. spoiler alert there. No spoiler alert. Right? <laughs> in fact, Robin Cook's Outbreak, the book, is different than the movie that Dustin Hoffman played, but they're based off the same concept. And it was phenomenal. I loved it. And for a long time, I thought about working in a high security lab at the CDC being the coolest job on earth.
1: Yeah, I didn't see the labs. <laughs> we were... <laughs> We were on the ground. I guess I spent a little bit of time in the labs, but most of it is, is applied epidemiology. And yeah, sure. I think outbreak the movie got me interested in this to begin with. Yeah, I was waiting to get my own monkey. There was no,
0: no. You critiche, get one when you join.
1: No, I thought I'd have my own like experimental
2: monkey just to hang around. <laughs> well, no. that
0: seems like a pretty good transition to our case, don't you think, Alex? <laughs>
2: <laughs> I, I think it absolutely does. We'll I've give heard a you couple with a monkey. A yeah. couple keywords here. I've heard smallpox. I've heard monkey, and and I think that has to lead us to a, a case, which is we're working in the Rochester emergency department. It's one a.m. and a patient gets roomed, and the chief complaint on the track board just says rash. I'm starting to think about a a lot of things. I'm thinking is this scabies. I'm already you know, starting to, to itch a little bit uh, ahead of time. Is this another allergic reaction? But also in the news, I've heard a little bit about monkeypox. And is monkeypox even what we should be calling this? So I wanted to hear before I go into this room, what are some things I should be thinking about? Sure,
1: and we can you know, skip to the monkeypox thing if we're going to do a podcast about rashes. Like it'd be all day long. Right? Yeah. Uh, True. A little bit about monkeypox before we talk about this case. Most people haven't heard of monkeypox or had to think back to you know two thousand, I you think know, two thousand three or so. But it was initially found in a laboratory monkey in the nineteen fifties. We didn't see any human cases until the 1970s, we eventually figured out this is not a monkey virus. It's actually in rodents and uh, monkeys and other primates, including humans, are incidental hosts. There are two different clades of monkeypox virus.
0: I'm going to jump in here real quick. If you're like me, you did not know what a clade was. A clade is a group of organisms believed to have evolved from a common ancestor. Okay let's continue.
1: There's the Congo Basin clade, which we find exclusively in Central Africa. And then we have the Western Africa uh, clade. And the Congo Basin clade is a lot worse, 10% case fatality. The Western Africa clade tends to be, not to call it benign, but less aggressive, sort of less than 1% case fatality is what we've um, learned to expect. This outbreak of monkeypox outside of Western Africa is really unprecedented in terms of its size, you know, its scale, how fast it's moving across the world, and you know, people can remember like, oh, the pictures of, of smallpox. So this is largely an infection presenting with rash, but it's a systemic disease, and so people can get pretty sick. And if you're thinking about smallpox, twenty five percent of people would have died, and so the rash is usually how this is spread and so it starts off as you know little macules or something or things in the mouth or wherever the inoculation happened and then eventually becomes these big pustules that are full thickness pretty painful and people get pretty sick but it's those lesions that the fluid from the lesion that if someone gets in contact with then they could get it Now, there's also some respiratory spread, but you kind of have to be really close for about four hours before we start talking about respiratory transmission. So the the vast majority of the transmission is going to be from direct contact with somebody who has active lesions. So how do we get to an outbreak of 12,000 people plus as of right now in the world where you need contact with someone with an active lesion who's actively sick? And so there's some peculiarities we're finding out about this outbreak in that the classic presentation of monkeypox is not really what we're seeing. You know, the the vast majority of cases have been amongst men who have sex with men, and especially those engaging in sort of anonymous sex. And there are many issues with engaging in, in anonymous sex, but part of it is from an epidemiology point of view is it's anonymous. And so... If somebody is having lesions, and they these may be just completely localized to anal genital lesions or in the mouth or something, and maybe minimally symptomatic, and then engaging in say close contact, intimate contact, then you can spread it. And if you're having multiple partners, then you can spread it to many people. But because the incubation period is long, one to two weeks is usual, but potentially even longer. People go all the way around the world with exposure and eventually have some symptoms and then spread it to other people. And so this has become a challenging outbreak just because of a lot of uh, factors about what we're learning about a little bit more mild disease, but still able to transmit, but also just some of the sociologic factors, looking at men who have sex with men and perhaps not being as forthcoming about potential risks. And, and so the outbreak has been difficult to really get our hands around.
0: Earlier, you mentioned that two types of this disease. Have either of them spread outside of Africa before?
1: So there's one type that we find exclusively in Central Africa, and the other type that we used to find only exclusively in Western Africa with occasional outbreaks outside. There was one in 2003 in the United States related to imported prairie dogs that were sold as pets that got infected by, I think it was imported rodents, other type of rodents from Africa that were in the same holding pen or something, I believe in Illinois somewhere. And then eventually, you know, the, the pet owners got infected. And that was, those numbers were in the 70s. Now we're looking at, you know, I think eighteen hundred cases in the United States, and those are or identified cases. It's you know, testing has been a little slower for us to get up to speed in terms of our nation. You know, the kind of commercial laboratories that we really need only recently it being able to run the test, and so we've been have a little bit of a slow start just in terms of how our healthcare mechanisms are in the U.S. My hope is that we're on a path where we can better identify as many cases as we can and you know, scale up our vaccine and get people vaccinated.
2: Something I really love about my job is that I'll see anyone anytime in the emergency department and I often have very little information when I first walk into the room and it's a great joy in my job to try and put a lot of pieces together. But it is true that sometimes I know nothing when I walk into the room. If I start to think that monkeypox may be on my differential, what do I need to do immediately? Do I need to, for example, move to a negative pressure room? What, what type of PPE would be safest for me to continue? Great question.
1: And if someone has a febrile rash illness, you know this is when where you really want to mark that, regardless of what it is, right? If it's measles, in this case, monkeypox, a febrile rash illness should, should spark some concern. In this case, you want to room the patient quickly. In in an ER, of course, there are going to be solo rooms, uh, at least in our ER. And we want to use the similar kind of personal protective equipment we would use if we were testing somebody for COVID. So gown, glove, eye protection, and a fitted N95. So a respirator of some sort. And the the majority of this is through contact, but in case there's an aerosol generating procedure or that sort of thing, you want to make sure that you're ready. And so that's the personal protective equipment that you would want to wear. Uh, you do not need negative air. So a regular room will be just fine. And then going about your normal stuff, including trying to test. And that's actually been a little bit more of a a struggle recently, but I think a lot of, a lot of places are starting to sort that out.
0: Earlier, you mentioned that these patients can be really sick. Do you mean that they're very symptomatic or do you mean that they might be in shock or needing pressors or things like that?
1: Yeah, it's really uncommon to have patients who are otherwise healthy who develop Western Africa monkeypox to become sick enough to to require hospitalization. They don't feel well, and the disease can last for weeks. Like They are not feeling well, and they have these lesions all over their body for weeks. I I read these reports of people who have gotten it. They're saying, wow, this is way worse than COVID. They're presuming they didn't require hospitalization for COVID. But this is not a... Yeah, people, this is not just a little rash that goes away. People feel pretty sick, but rarely with the Western Africa clade of monkeypox do they really require hospitalization.
0: Also, if I have a teammate who may be pregnant, what do I tell them about their ability to care for these patients with monkeypox when they come in the ED?
1: Yeah, this is one where the virus is really not that contagious. I mean, it's contagious if you are in direct contact with the lesions or fluid from the lesions, including fomites, meaning that if somebody has a towel that they've used and you come in contact with the towel, but using appropriate personal protective equipment, you know, if any patient who has a lesion, you should be wearing, using you know universal precautions. And, and so usually using the usual stuff should keep everybody safe, and especially in a healthcare setting.
2: You talked a little bit about rooming this patient quickly. One issue that we have faced in COVID and many emergency departments have experienced are increased wait times and sometimes full waiting rooms. I can see myself in this situation where a patient gets roomed and I stop and turn and look at the waiting room and it was potentially full and the patient was out there for a while. And I'm thinking about an EIS agent and their eyes just (laughs) <laughs> bulging out at a patient waiting in our waiting room for a long time with this how many of these patients other patients then need to be quarantined and the healthcare staff at the front of the house what kind of precautions are we giving to them
1: yeah if somebody's in the same room for 4 hours is where we start to really worry about respiratory transmission hopefully that's that's not happening which again, if somebody's coming in with a febrile rash illness, this is one that you want to room more quickly for exactly that reason. And provided that their lesions are covered with clothing or things like that, it's not something you really have to worry that much about. Now, the, if a healthcare worker you know, touched a lesion without gloves or you know, the appropriate PPE, then we'd have to worry about that person. But this is not uh, something that's going to spread that quickly in just a waiting area you do want them roomed quickly if if feasible.
2: That's really helpful. And I I sometimes joke that on a pediatric shift, a febrile rash is the entire shift. And so uh, sometimes uh, it feels like that's that's all I'm seeing. But in this particular case, could you walk us through a little bit of the history and physical examination that might lead us to this diagnosis? Because I've heard Mention of it's like smallpox and things like that, which to me as an emergency physician is very concerning.
1: <laughs> yeah, so the classic again, we're being challenged by what is classic now that we have you know twelve thousand cases worldwide. The classic is to have a prodrome of fever, sometimes really high fever, and lymphadenopathy prior to the start of macular lesions that then progress to to pustules over a period of weeks or week or so rather. And so you may see them at the time that they're prodromal. Uh, You may see them at the time that they start to have these lesions that may look vesicular initially before they become really really pustular. The big thing here is gonna be history. You know, understanding, well, has this person with a fever and a rash been to, especially Western Europe where we're seeing cases uh, have they had close contact with a known case? Have they had multiple anonymous sexual partners? These are the things to heighten your awareness and to think about monkeypox in a particular patient. And at some point, if this is uncontrolled, you know we will start to see this in other populations. Which is why it's important that we don't just restrict our thoughts to just men who have
0: sex with men. As I'm examining. A patient who has a fever, if I wanted to check for lesions that could come up, is there a certain order in which you would check? And my follow-up question is, we've been talking about more of enteric sites, uh, like perianal mouth, but what about your genital sites? Are we seeing lesions in those areas as well?
1: I'll ask the answer to the second question first. Yeah. We are seeing genital, your anogenital lesions, and oral lesions as well Um, and sometimes like that's all they have and it is the point of inoculation like if if someone's engaging in receptive anal intercourse with someone with penile lesions then that's where they're going to have symptoms first so i guess if i were to look at one area first i'd start with whatever is most symptomatic and people should have you know, some sort of at least local symptom even if it's relatively mild and not the full-blown classic case of monkeypox but i'd start with whatever is bothering them it is important to note that this is not a sexually transmitted infection uh, it is through close contact of course close intimate contact is works as well in terms of transmission but it is not transmitted through semen or anything like that and you can certainly get it transmitted from a lesion or a fomite on their arm or something like that. And so uh, this is why I think it's important that we really clarify that this is not just a a disease that at this point uh, could only impact men who have sex with men.
0: What an excellent point Pratish to emphasize. Although currently we are seeing this disease amongst people with certain common sexual behaviors, This is not a sexually transmitted infection and is not spread isolated through semen or vaginal secretions. In fact, contact and exposure time seem to be the things you're most emphasizing, and we should keep that in mind. Let me ask a follow-up question about lymphadenopathy. Of the cases of monkeypox that have been identified already, do you know if the lymphadenopathy is regional and located near the lesions on the skin, or is it? Possible to have global lymphadenopathy?
1: Yeah, lymphadenopathy is the usual hallmark of, of monkeypox. Even in comparison to smallpox or chickenpox, which is you know, not a not actually a pox virus, it's a human uh, herpes virus. The, the really hallmark of monkeypox is the lymphadenopathy, and it can be generalized. Now, not everyone is having it. Uh, as we were looking, learning more about the twelve thousand cases most people will develop lymphadenopathy. And if they are localized anogenital lesions, I guess that's where I would expect the greatest degree of lymphadenopathy.
2: When I'm comparing, contrasting the examination in this case from um, other febrile rashes, and I'm thinking about things like varicella, measles, things like that, is there anything that's going to be a giveaway?
1: A few things with varicella, so primary chickenpox, usually the fever comes on at the onset of the rash. For monkeypox, there's a prodrome of a couple of days. And then you should see lesions on the palms or soles for monkeypox infection. That's pretty rare for chickenpox. There's the difference between centrifugal and centripetal.
0: Let me cut in and give us a review on centripetal versus centrifugal rashes. Centripetal rashes begin on the periphery on our extremities and then progress towards the trunk and core of the body. Centrifugal rashes do the opposite. They begin generally on the trunk and core and extend outward toward the extremities. Sometimes you will see centripetal rashes as being listed as focused primarily on the trunk and centrifugal rashes primarily focused on the extremities. Examples of centripetal rashes, again, those moving from outside in, would include varicella, measles, rubella, roseola. Examples of centrifugal rashes, or those starting centrally and moving outwardly, would include Coxsackie virus, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, and secondary syphilis. Okay, let's get back to Pratish.
1: So monkeypox usually starts in the core, so mouth, and and then going out uh, to the extremities, whereas for chickenpox, it should be the other way around. Looking at the lesion itself, these pox viruses, monkeypox, smallpox, these are full thickness, and they are... You know, hard and deep. Call it umbilicated, kind of this little indentation in the middle. Mind you, that's when you get to the really pustular phase of it. The chickenpox, kind of that dewdrop on a rose petal. You know, superficial, irregular borders. The rash looks different. And if you look at one area of their body that has this for chickenpox, you should have different stages of the lesions within one area. For monkeypox, these should be the same stage within any one particular part of the body. And so I think that's the biggest thing to think about. And you can also, if it's uh, only one particular region, you know, region, thinking about even reactivation, you know, uh, so varicella zoster shingles, it'll look similar, more so like chickenpox
2: and a lot less like monkeypox. The classic teaching in the EM literature was always, if you see chicken pox, and it's all in the same stage, you're in trouble because we were always thinking about smallpox, but I guess that's a similar development for monkeypox.
1: Yeah, they're going to develop similarly. The big difference is the degree of fever and the lymphadenopathy between monkeypox and smallpox.
2: You've touched a little bit on testing. Can you tell us what types of tests we're going to order? And is that something we can get done at Mayo or is that a send out? So, what you would
1: do is get a very specific swab that we're using, and unroof a lesion. Mind you, you are in a correct PPE doing this. <laughs> Absolutely, unroof a lesion and send fluid. And at Mayo Clinic, we are able to use an in-house test. And very quickly, we're trying to get all of those instructions and how to actually do that up where clinicians would look for it. And that's what we're doing as part of part of our incident command and uh, trying to integrate all this work that a bunch of people are doing across our institution to get it to really at the hands of our primary providers, our frontline providers. But outside of Mayo, there's a lot of other laboratories that are are running this as well. Uh, LabCorp being one. Mayo's lab, of course, will be able to have higher volumes, I think, in the next few weeks, being able to take tests, a lot of tests from outside. The availability of testing, I think, has been... Uh, one of the roadblocks to really identifying the scope of the US outbreak. It hasn't been easy and we're slowly getting there. Once we have providers aware that need to, they need to start thinking about it, know how to get a test done and where to send it, that's really going to help us identify the scope of this outbreak.
2: And from your point of view, when you see these incidence numbers and the difficulty with testing, are you skeptical of them? I think
1: these are gross underestimates. We are probably seeing the tip of the iceberg right now, but that's fairly typical of any emerging infection. The first thing you're going to see are the folks who are perhaps the sickest showing up. You know, There's a lot of barriers beyond just having a provider think about it and having a test done. We are you know, looking at a sometimes marginalized group of people, men who have sex with men, and seeing our unfortunate history, especially through the AIDS epidemic of stigmatizing, people may not not be as forthcoming about their risk factors when having sex with men or engaging in anonymous sex for somebody to tell a complete stranger that and recognizing that there's at least been historical stigma. And so that's something I think we really need to work to overcome because we can help these folks and help prevent transmission it is also important that as you're asking these questions, you recognize that there is historic stigma and you approach this in a non judgmental fashion so that people are comfortable telling you these very private details about their lives. And it turns out that these details are the things that are, are going to be really important to you know, getting our hands on this outbreak.
2: Along those lines, when we're assessing a patient who is sharing those details with us, and discloses this and is requesting STI testing. Should we be considering a cutaneous, a monkeypox PCR test with this type of history if we see a rash or even if we, you know, we aren't saying that this is the specific rash we're worried about, but we're thinking about other things such as HSV or syphilis, a variety of things that cause rash. Should we be testing for this as well?
1: Yeah. If somebody is presenting and they have they have concerns about sexually transmitted infection and they have a, a rash, I would I would test for monkeypox, but also HSV and other other sexually transmitted infections that cause you know, genital lesions.
0: To that end, if somebody's rash is not fluid filled, is there an alternative way that we can test for monkeypox?
1: I'm not sure what the sensitivity would be if you are sort of rubbing the lesion before there's a pustule there. Ideally, you're sending fluid. And if everything is negative and things progress, this may require subsequent testing. But I don't know the sensitivity of the test in that early phase of just rubbing the area that should be teeming with virus. But yeah, I I don't know the answer to that.
0: What about? other body fluids like saliva or blood. Can these be tested right now?
1: Right now, the, the, the real thing is you want ideally fluid from a lesion, because that's, that's going to be the most accessible and the most characteristic of, of this disease.
2: You talked in our introduction about a goal of ramping up vaccine production, and I'd like to hear more about that as well as potential treatments. I've read about some potential things, but I've certainly never prescribed any of these medications. There's two different vaccines
1: that we would use for post-exposure prophylaxis. One is ACAM2000, which is the more classic smallpox vaccine and is licensed for smallpox prevention. That's a modified sort of an attenuated uh, vaccinia, similar to the original sort of dry vax that we, we use for many decades. But that is a live vaccine and not necessarily approved for monkeypox, but it should work for about 80%. There is a, another vaccine, Ginios, that is replication deficient. And so that is safer to use in you know, pregnancy and immunocompromised hosts and, and lots of things. And it's actually licensed for the prevention of monkeypox. And so we're trying to lean on on that vaccine, you know, a lot less side effects and things like that. But you know, since we haven't needed that many, as you can understand that, you know, there just hasn't been the production of the vaccine to the levels that that we need it. And so uh, the company is working to increase their vaccine availability. At the same time, our public health authorities are trying to sort out who is the highest risk, who really needs this in terms of what is their risk factor, their health risk factors, right? Somebody's immunocompromised and they had a high risk exposure, that'd be somebody we would want to prioritize for vaccination. Of how do we really control this outbreak? Is testing to identify cases and then ring vaccination of those close contacts so that we can get the vaccine to prevent the disease. And usually, if you get the vaccine within four days of exposure, you can prevent the infection. And if you get it within two weeks, you can really mollify the symptoms, even if you end up getting the disease.
2: That's incredible. So, this is a vaccine you could give after
1: exposure that would improve the symptoms. If you get it within four days, it really should stop uh, stop the disease from happening in most people.
0: I imagine that if I diagnose monkeypox or have somebody that I'm strongly suspicious has monkeypox, I should be instructing them to think carefully about recent contacts so that we can facilitate vaccination. Is that right?
1: Yeah. And this is where public health usually steps in. If you have a confirmed monkeypox case, your laboratory or you or somebody needs to contact your local health department. Thankfully, here at Mayo Clinic, there's a, a laboratory direct connection. And of course, our, our folks in infection prevention control would have been there throughout. Because if you're suspecting this, please call them and they can help navigate the interactions with public health. That's a large role for public health to identify the people that they've been around and get them vaccinated if appropriate.
0: Pratish, Pretend I was recently diagnosed with monkeypox in the emergency department. As I'm leaving, what kind of counseling would you give on what to expect from this illness?
1: Yeah, if, if you had monkeypox, I'd let you know that there's uh, unfortunately a long road ahead of you and that it'll be a few weeks before everything scabs over and you need to isolate during that time. If you're living with other people, isolating uh, away from them as much as you can and whatever bed sheets and things like that, really trying to wash them and things like that before other people would have contact with those. So it's an isolation for really a while until all of the lesions scab over.
0: Dr. Tosh, that was really helpful to hear and have a framework for us to use when we are discussing this at discharge, just to give people reassurance From what I'm hearing, if the patient, even if they look miserable and are obviously feeling miserable with full body pox, if they have benign vital signs, are not immunocompromised, and have the ability to safely isolate themselves, we are okay sending them home.
1: Yes. As long as they can do all the things, you know, eat, drink, go to the restroom, it is safe to send them home.
0: Relatedly, When I'm thinking about treating or managing their symptoms, should I be focusing on NSAIDs, REST, and fluids, or are there other symptomatic treatments?
1: Fluid and REST is going to be the mainstay of therapy, but there are some investigational agents, tecovirumat being one, that's available as an investigational new drug, so it's a study protocol. One of the things that our teams here at Mayo, we're trying to work on is how do we make it easier for a provider to potentially get this drug for a patient sort of compassionate use. And, but it's a study. And so there's blood draws and things like that involved. And so for the really high risk person or person who's having some severe symptoms, this would be somebody we definitely want to consider at. Yeah, you know, there's a big procedure and how, how do we get that done and a lot of signatures and things like that but involvement of public health to make those decisions. But that's a consideration.
0: Dr. Tosh, are there any additional return precautions above and beyond our typical instructions that we should be including for these patients?
1: I think it'd be the usual stuff. But if they are having other problems
0: because of the isolation,
1: they need to let people know.
0: Let's switch gears just a moment, Dr. Tosh. Let's think about pediatrics. We have not talked about them just yet. If I am taking care of a child who has monkeypox or who may have monkeypox, are there any unique diagnostic considerations or treatment considerations related to unvaccinated or vaccinated children with this disease?
1: Children haven't been a large part of this outbreak, but no reason that they couldn't be exposed to somebody with lesions. And so the numbers are small smallpox vaccination in a child, just because we stopped smallpox vaccination in at the latest, the early eighties, depending on what part of the world you live in, that really there are no children who've had routine smallpox vaccination. And so they're essentially all unvaccinated. Uh, so it's tough to to for me to really say what it's going to look like in a child compared to an adult, but we would expect fever, lymphadenopathy, and pustular lesions.
0: What a great point. I just made the error of confusing the chickenpox vaccine with monkeypox prevention. I think that's why I'm here, man. Oh man, if only you could help me in so many other areas. I am definitely gonna be a better doctor for this conversation. Pratish, do you mind if we take a moment and let me summarize what I've heard so far? Sure thing. So, what we have talked about so far is that this is not a sexually transmitted infection, even though the group that is being most affected are men who are having sex with men, we do not want to further stigmatize this group when this condition can be spread to anyone through any kind of exposure to a lesion. And it is that exposure and the duration of that exposure that is most concerning for the spread. As patients present to the emergency department with fever and rash, we have to have a healthy amount of concern that these patients probably should be roomed as soon as possible. Although we may be concerned for our safety, as long as we are wearing the appropriate PPE, we should be able to safely provide care for these folks, even if we are pregnant or immunocompromised. As healthcare providers trying to differentiate monkeypox from other fever and rash syndromes, we need to think about the patient's individual risk in terms of their behaviors and their types of intimate contact. We need to look at the rash itself. Is it painful? Does it cross all the layers of the skin? Is it umbilicated, particularly late in its presentation? Are the lesions of the same stage in a certain body region? Also, we need to evaluate for lymphadenopathy. This is an important feature of this disease. When we are concerned about monkeypox, we should test the patient. Of course, we need to be thoughtful about wearing our PPE and planning for aerosolized spread, and we need to unroof a particular pox lesion and send the fluid within it. It's unclear the efficacy of rubbing lesions with a swab if they do not have any fluid. We need to add this to our routine testing of patients who have a rash and need STI evaluation. Also, admission is not routinely needed for these patients. We need to think about socioeconomic risk factors that might mandate admission, as well as other health considerations that require admission. We need to counsel our patients that this is a long road, and the focus of their attention should be on isolating themselves and being thoughtful about fomites such as sheets and towels. Standard return precautions should be sufficient here, but also paying attention to the effects of isolation on your patient. Vaccination for the patient who has been recently exposed or any contacts within four days may be very helpful. For all patients with monkeypox, the acute treatments really focus on our conservative measures, encouraging fluids, rest, and antipyretics. Of course, there are some active studies going on on some targeted monkeypox therapies, but there are some administrative hassles to overcome, and the patient may or may not be a candidate we want to engage infectious disease and public health early to try and see if our patients could be a candidate for those therapies. That's not to say that's the only reason. In fact, a key point of this would be to engage infectious disease and public health early and throughout the process of evaluating and caring for these patients as we see them in the emergency department. How did I do, Pratish? Did I get it?
2: I think that's it, man. I think you got it. This has been incredible. I've learned so much about something I knew very little about. We're so grateful for your time. Do you have any other words of wisdom for us today?
1: I really appreciate this. And a little bit of knowledge about Monkeypox will go a long way during this outbreak.
2: Well, we're incredibly grateful for your time and for... All of your leadership during this monkeypox episode, as well as throughout COVID. We're grateful to have you looking also to the next emerging infection as well.
1: Thanks, guys. I really appreciate the invite.
0: Okay, everybody. It is July 24th, 2022, and in the last few days, certainly after we just interviewed Dr. Tosh and have edited that for you, more information on Monkeypox has come to light. We think it's really important that you have that information, even though we have not been able to to sit down with Dr. Tosh to get his thoughts on these new pieces of information. So what am I talking about? Recently, the World Health Organization declared monkeypox globally a public health emergency of international concern, This is coming about one month after a committee convened by the WHO felt that this was only of moderate concern, but because of case escalation and some other factors, they think it's prudent to go ahead at this time and declare it an emergency of international concern. There's a lot of reasons why the World Health Organization decided to do this, and I would refer you to their website for the details of that. Also, three days ago, the New England Journal of Medicine released the article, Monkey Pox Virus Infection in Humans Across 16 Countries, April to June 2022, from the ShareNet Clinical Group. This article is, I think, worth talking about so that you are empowered with the information within it and then can have educated discussions in the emergency departments where you work and with patients and staff elsewhere. Let's get into it. It should be noted that this article is presenting observational data of a convenient sample of cases of monkeypox that had PCR-confirmed disease from any anatomical fluid or source. This was put together by the ShareNet Clinical Group, which I was not personally familiar with, but I applaud them. The origin of this group starts with the London-based Sexual Health and HIV All-East Research Collaborative. Or share. Now, this group contacted their peers around the world and wanted to share information about this disease. They found several other entities around the world that wanted to do this, and this new collaborative is called ShareNet, not to be confused with Skynet, of course. They quickly created a spreadsheet and a case report form that allowed for de-identified data to be shared and somewhat compared with each other. Now, keep in mind, this is observational data and not a trial, and we should not try and gather any kind of causative relationships from it, but simply just look at the patterns, understanding that it is highly susceptible to various biases. I should also point out, the group started this idea in May of 2022, in fact, essentially one day before June 2022, And they were able to get it published by July 21st, 2022 in the New England Journal of Medicine. And I think that in itself is an outstanding accomplishment by these authors as well as the New England Journal for recognizing the importance of this timely information and getting it processed and to us that quickly. The actual cases were between April 27th and 2022 and June 24th, 2022. And patient consent was obtained for reporting of the case as well as any pictures that were presented. And there are numerous pictures in the article that I think are worth looking at. Okay, let's get into it. The results. There were 528 cases from 16 different countries in five continents, 43 different clinical sites participated in this. The majority of the patients were male. In fact, all but one were described as male and one patient described themselves as trans or non-binary. The median age was 38 years of age. 9% of the patients had previous Smallpox vaccination, which I think is particularly interesting. 90% of the patients had traveled to Europe within the last month before their infection. 29% had concomitant sexually transmitted infection diagnosed at the time of monkeypox. 41 percent of patients had hiv and most of these patients were very well controlled it says 20 percent, or one-fifth of the cases that were reported said that they used psychoactive substances like ghb or crystal methamphetamine while having sex most of the patients reported having symptoms such as fever lethargy myalgia or headache Prior to the presentation of the generalized rash, 56% had lymphadenopathy. The majority of the rashes described did involve anal genital region, 73% to be specific. 55% of patients had lesions on their trunk, arms, or legs, and a quarter of patients had lesions on their face. Only 10% of the patients in this report had lesions on their palms or soles, which may be a little different than other monkeypox outbreaks. There are many pictures in the article that highlight the variety of appearances, and the descriptions were everything from macular to vesicular, crusted, pustular. Most patients had fewer than 10 lesions. In fact, about 10% of the patients had a single ulcer located in the anal genital region which the authors hypothesized could be a source of misdiagnosis or misclassification as an alternative sexually transmitted infection. I know I certainly, from that description, could make that mistake. And just under half the patients, or 44%, had mucosal membrane involvement with their lesions. Very interestingly, several patients had lesions that were in multiple phases at the same time. Although 528 patients are included in this case series, Only 30 patients had confident timelines from that 30. The authors report that the range of days between exposure to monkeypox to development of first symptoms was between 3 days and 20 days, with a median of 7 days. Only a small number of these patients required admission, but those who did were for several reasons, including superimposed soft tissue infections. A small number were unable to adequately support their oral intake needs related to pharyngitis or oral pains. Two patients had acute kidney injury. Two patients had myocarditis but did not have any long-term sequela. 13 patients were admitted because of infection control reasons, and one person was admitted with epiglottitis. Certainly, the majority of the testing that resulted in PCR positivity to get into this case series the majority of that was from skin lesions but there were a few other types of testing that is reported and I think is interesting for us to be aware of. 26% of the patients in this case series had positive PCR testing from nasopharyngeal swabs, 7% had positive testing on blood samples, 3% had urine that tested positive. The authors also share that 32 of the patients that were positive and in this case series did have semen that was tested to see if it had monkeypox virus, and 29 of those 32 samples tested positive. In general, the authors share Dr. Tasha's concern that spread to other populations is anticipated, and they also encourage us to work collaboratively with public health organizations and our patients to try and be prepared and minimize the spread at this stage in the outbreak. I think this article highlights the variability in the presentations and that in general these patients do okay without admission except for a very select and rare group of reasons or indications. I think it also shows that we will probably learn more about what types of body fluids can be tested and the accuracy of those tests over time. I do think that Understanding that the lesions on the skin could look differently is really important. And then they did have one description of the lesions being multiple phases within the same patient, which I think is a little different than the way I had conceptualized this. And so we should be alert to this condition and the threat it poses to the public. We should be sensitive to the already stigmatized group of patients that is currently selecting for understanding that the future of this outbreak is likely to affect more than that population and we should be compassionate and understanding of the fact that this is going to be quite a toll. Thank you so much for listening to this addendum as well as the original interview with Dr. Tosh. I hope you found it really valuable. If you have any thoughts you want to share, we definitely want to hear them. Please don't hesitate to email us at alwaysonem at gmail.com or reach out on Twitter at AlwaysOnEM. Certainly, we would greatly appreciate it if you were to like, comment, follow, or subscribe, depending on your podcast platform, as it will help us reach more people, and it will show that we're doing a good job for you. Thank you so much. Until next month, be safe and be happy. The Always On EM Podcast, hosted by Alex Finch, and Venk Balamkanda.